No, it is uh, a discipline of the body to be here on days like this. When you lose an hour of sleep, it affects us, and we are, we are a whole person, spirit, soul, and body. So uh, I know that's a sacrifice, so thanks for sacrificing and worshiping God by being here. We don't take that for granted, so thanks for being here with us. If you're one of the guests, my name is Matt Rawlings, one of the pastors here, and I want to add my welcome to Aaron's. Thanks for being here. And then if you are married and in this room, or if you're married and listening, um, we would love for you to come tonight to the marriage seminar. If you've been to a Paul Tripp marriage seminar, this is not the same as before, um, and it will be very helpful just four Sunday evenings. If you can invest eight hours total, two hours tonight, and then f- and three more times after that, um, I guarantee if you apply the principles that you hear, God will use that to change and to improve and to grow your marriage. And, and, and can I ask a question? Here, who here would like to improve and grow in their marriage and how they love their spouse? And if you didn't raise your hand, your spouse should be kind of nudging you and saying, hey, honey, you should want to grow in how you love me and how you honor God and how you love God by loving me, right? So if you are married, I'd encourage you to come tonight, sign up. And if you have not signed up, do that today and come tonight. I would like everybody in the church, it would be wonderful to have every married couple in the church be able to attend because um, I believe this will really change how we relate to each other, and how we testify of God in our marriages. So turn your Bibles to Revelation 2. We're going to be continuing in our series in the book of Revelation. We've been going through Revelation for the last uh, about two months or so. We are right in the middle of a series of messages that Jesus himself is giving to the church. And so Jesus is giving messages to seven different churches. And so this is the fourth message, not message, fourth message that he is giving to his church. And each of these messages addresses something specific, some specific area of the church that's unique to that specific church, but that also applies to the church universal. So in each of these messages, they were written to real churches, to real people facing real temptations in a real time and place, and yet they apply universally to all of the church. And so we see different nuances that he's addressing, and in each of these passages, he takes one little portion of, of the vision of him that we saw in chapter 1 of John when he gives this vision to John of who he is and reveals himself. And he takes a portion of who he reveals himself to be and then he applies it to the church. So in every way, these messages apply specifically to his church. And if you are here today and you are a believer, you are part of his church. And so there will be ways that this message applies to you and I as well. So turn your Bibles to Revelation 2, verses 18 to 19. And one of the things we like to do from time to time is we like to stand for the reading of God's Word to acknowledge that this is God's holy inspired Word. So let's stand together in reverence and give honor to God for His Word. This is His holy inspired Word. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and servants and patience endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works." Of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works. Until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us in our physical bodies that are weak today. Pray that you would enliven us, Lord, that Lord, we can only hear your word if you enable us to hear it. Lord, we can only apply ourselves, Lord, if you enable us. So, Lord, I pray that you would enable us to hear your word, to stay attentive, to stay awake, Lord. We're tired. Lord, would you strengthen our feeble bodies? Lord, would you enable our minds to comprehend what you are saying, Lord? And would you give us your grace to be able to respond to you? God, thank you that you have revealed yourself to be the one with a flaming eyes, Lord, that Jesus, the one whose gaze penetrates. God, I pray that you would penetrate our hearts and our minds, that we would respond to your word, that we would not go away just hearing your word, but Lord, we would, we would seek to how to apply your words to our life. And Lord, I pray that you would just give your grace and your freedom as we do that. Lord, help not only all of us who are here, Lord, to hear, but Lord, help me to preach. We need your spirit, and so we ask you, come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Although the formal system of slavery, it's, it's long since ended in this country. It's been abolished in most of the world. Slavery still exists. It's been made a crime, but it still survives in the dark corners of the world. It's, it's not a distant reality. For many in this country, slavery is still something very real. It's a result of greed, the idea that humans can be used to get what other humans want. The, the needs of other humans are less than those who prey upon them. I was reading some statistics about slavery this past week and the Department of Homeland Security they were talking about human trafficking. They defined it as modern-day form of slavery involving the legal trade of people for exploitation or commercial gain. And in 2012, the International Labor Organization estimated there are 20.9 million human trafficking victims worldwide. According to the National Human Trafficking Resource Center, over 3,500 cases were trafficked of trafficking reported in 2016. 2,600 trafficking survivors Self-reported in 2017, the Global Slavery Index in 2018 estimated that on any given day, there were 403,000 people living in conditions of modern slavery in the United States. A prevalence of 1.3 victims of modern slavery for every thousand in this country. I mention that not because this text is about human trafficking or about physical slavery, but it... it, it it speaks to the heart. It speaks to the issues that are behind that. It speaks to the enslavement of the human heart, to the enslavement of our minds. The text is really all about how easy it is to become enslaved to sin. And those enslavements to sin lead to further and further debauchery, further immorality, further idolatry. It doesn't take much to figure out how did the problems in our nation become as egregious as they are, they, they, they were grown in the soil that tolerated idolatry. They were grown in the soil that was okay with compromise, okay with tolerating differences in a negative way. There was rampant in this church in Thyatira, there was rampant immorality um, there was temple prostitution, likely there was human enslavement as well going on all around the church, and then Jesus was talking to this church because he is addressing people in the church who are putting up with the kind of thing. They're putting up with immorality. They're putting up with debauchery. They're putting up with idolatry. And you wonder, how do those kinds of things happen? How, how does that kind of thing happen in the church? How does how does the church allow immorality? How does the church get to the place where they turn a blind eye to sin and, and, and idolatry. Things like this happen when we're deceived into believing lies that how we live doesn't matter. We're deceived into believing that what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. We're deceived into believing that God doesn't care about how we live. Those kinds of distortion and, and sin, how it creeps in, it's subtle, right? 
It can creep in anywhere. It can creep even into the church. And that is what has happened in the church in Thyatira. They, they have allowed sin to creep in by not correcting false doctrine, not addressing issues of the heart, not addressing issues of the mind. And so because they've not addressed these issues of the heart and issues of the mind, Jesus now comes and he addresses issues of the heart. And he addresses issues of the mind. How we think about him, how we think about our works, how we think about what he's called us to do, it affects how we live. And if we're not careful to watch not only our life but our doctrine closely, it results in the kind of immorality and idolatry that the church in Thyatira was experiencing. If you think about it, Christianity is all about freedom from slavery. It's all about freedom from slavery to sin. We were once, here's what we believe as, as Christians. We believe that we were once enslaved to sin. We, we once had no choice. We were enslaved to sin. Sin was our master. We belonged to the kingdom of darkness. And yet, we believe that if we've responded to Jesus, that God has made us alive in him and enabled us to respond to him, and he set us free. He set us free from sin. We're no longer enslaved to sin. Once we were enemies of God, but now we've been brought near to him so that now we can live for him and be free to actually live for God to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that he has worked in us. We've been made righteous through the works of Jesus Christ. And on the basis of his works, we are completely accepted by God. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, I know that already, I'm okay with that, those words should astound you. We've been set free from sin. We're no longer slaves. We're completely accepted by the works of Jesus. Those things should ignite our souls. They should make a difference. They should make a difference in how we live. Some, though, today, just like in that day, were saying... That it doesn't matter how we live because we've been set free because the works of Jesus have been credited to us. Now, how we work, what we do doesn't really matter. We can live as we want. There's a, there's a, a word for that. It's called antinomian or against the law. It's saying that, you know what? Because the law has been satisfied, because now it's all of grace, we no longer have to worry about what we live like. We don't have to worry about our actions or our works. And it's an insidious message, but it's not a gospel message. You see, the gospel has set us free from the law so that by the works of Jesus we're justified so that we can actually now be free to work for him. And somehow the people in Thyatira had, had missed that to some point. And what we'll see in this message to the church from Jesus is that it's actually all about works. And you think, hang on, wait a minute, I thought, thought we believed in the gospel of grace. Well, yes, we do, and so does Jesus, who by grace has saved us. But look down your Bibles. Look in verse 18. He describes himself as the one with fiery eyes and these pure bronze feet. Then in verse 19, look in your Bibles, it says he knows what? He knows their, you know, say it out loud. He knows their works. Then skip down. In the verses 20 to 23, and what he's doing there is he's exposing the works of the woman Jezebel and all who follow her. Then in verse 22, look in your Bibles, it says, Those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation until they, unless they repent of her, what? Her works. And then in verse 23, he warns them again and he says, I will give to each of you as your, what deserve? As your works deserve. Then in verse 26, he promises rewards to those who do his works. The one who conquers, look in verse 26, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, I will give authority over the nations. Does Jesus care how we live? The answer is unmistakably yes. Does he care about our works? Yes. Are we saved by grace? Yes, but we're saved by grace to works and he cares about what we do. And some had gotten to the place where they said, you know what, we're just going to tolerate some things in our midst for the sake of love, because you know it's all about love. The church in Ephesus had held on to their doctrine really closely, but they failed to love each other. Now the church here in Thyatira, they are loving each other well, but they're failing to hold on to doctrine. 
And so we see that in the context of Thyatira, it makes sense that Jesus is addressing and talking about works because in the city of Thyatira, it, was, it could have been called a city of works, really. They were a city that was all formed around guilds or labor unions that had organized into things called guilds. And so there was a guild for any kind of work you could think of. And, and actually, there's more guilds listed about the city of Thyatira than any other Roman city in the time. They had all kinds of guilds from leather workers to bronze workers. They had people like Lydia in the New Testament was from Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple dye. And they had dye workers guilds, and they had all these different types of guilds. And yet, the thing about Thyatira is if you didn't belong to one of these guilds, it was really hard to make an income because no one would do business with you. And so you had to belong to one of these guilds in order to do work. And if you belong to one of these guilds, there were expectations that you would go along with that kind of behavior. And so we see that the first thing he addresses in the church is is works, but he wants to do something for the church. He wants to show them that that their works are recognized. He, He recognizes the works. He doesn't dismiss the good works they're doing, even though he corrects some of the things that they're overlooking. And so the first thing we see in verses 18 and 19 is that their works are recognized for the good that they are doing. And, and it's pretty remarkable as well. If you, if you think about it, the, he commends some things here that are pretty impressive. Look in verse 19. He says, I know your works. And he, he explains what those works look like. And he says, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. That your latter works exceed the first. And Jesus here, he is uniquely qualified to evaluate the works. And he kind of describes himself. And the reason why he describes himself in these terms so they can see he's uniquely qualified to evaluate their works. He is, he's the one with fiery eyes. Now, whenever you see these pictures of Jesus, you're not meant to actually picture this in your head. But it's symbolic. And so he's the one with fiery eyes. And that, that symbolizes that he's the one who sees through He sees rightly. All the fog of motives, everything of all the reasons that people give for why they do what they do, all the excuses that people make, Jesus sees right through that to the heart of the matter. He's got fiery eyes. And then he has feet that are bronze, they're pure. All of his ways are are pure and solid and strong and righteous. He's qualified. And, And look at how he announces himself. He announces himself here as the Son of God. It's the only place in the entire book of Revelation he announces himself as the Son of God. And I think he does that because he's speaking to people who were surrounded by a culture that worshipped Apollos, who claimed to be the son of Zeus, the god, because Apollos was the patron saint of the guilds, the patron god, really, of the guilds. And so he says, no, I'm the true Son of God. And it's an echo, really, of this picture that we saw, not only the beginning of of Revelation 1, but in in Daniel 10. In Daniel 10, God's describing, I mean, Daniel's describing how his appearance of God, and says his body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. What do we see here? We see a picture of the Son of God who is qualified to evaluate works, who is pure, who is righteous, who sees through everything. Thyatira is also a place that they they valued their bronze workers guild, and their bronze workers were able to produce a bronze that nobody else anywhere was able to produce. It was was this brilliant, gleaming bronze. And Jesus says, no, I'm brighter than that. And and in fact, I know the secrets of, of all of your hearts. And, and I'm able to walk out in this strong, gleaming, kind of glowing bronze. His, his feet are pure and precious, it's strong. Later in Revelation 19.15, we're going to see a picture of Jesus and, and who he is. And in Revelation 19.15, it says, And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. He's able to mete out justice. He's able to carry out God's judgment. So when Jesus says, I know your works, he describes them in terms that refer to their works of Christian witness. And he says, I know your works of love. And he commends them for their love. Now I was thinking about this list and thinking about my own life. and thinking, what would Jesus say about the works in my life? You know, because I've been saved by his work, now I am free to work for him. But what would he say about the works in my life? You see, he commends this church for 
their great love. He says, I know your works are your love, your faith, your servants, your patient endurance. And then he says something else surprising. Your latter works exceed the first. When you first became a church, when you first became Christians, he says, your latter works, your works now are greater than they were to begin with. Boy, that's convicting, isn't it? You know, I think back to when I first became a believer and when I first became passionate about working for God in response to his great work for me, I was filled with zeal. I wanted to just serve God no matter what. I just wanted to give everything to him. I, I wanted to love God with all my heart, mind, and soul. I wanted to, my, my faith in him was great. I, I was serving him. I, I wanted to patiently endure. And then life kind of happens, right? Things get busy. Yet this church didn't succumb to the business of life when they grew up and they had kids and they matured. As they went along, they didn't drop off. They didn't lag. He says their works matured. They increased. Their love increased. Their faith increased. Their service increased. They didn't just walk the aisle, so to speak, to serve Jesus for a little while and then go work on our golf game. They saw that what Jesus had done for them was to result in serving God with all their, all their life. And they were like highly trained athletes that were following Jesus in doing the works that he had done. I wonder how many of us today can say that our works of love, our faith, our service, our patient endurance are greater than they were to begin with. The only way that we can have that kind of zeal is if we see the grace of God and fan into flame the love that Jesus has for us, the grace that he has given to us. And they've grown in faith, and that implies that their knowledge of and their trust of God has grown. They, they expect God to be at work, and they've grown in their faith that he will be at work. When it comes to our works or deeds, they, they know that they're not unimportant. Jesus himself, he said in, in John 4, he says, my food, this is what Jesus said, his very food was to do the will of of him who sent me and accomplished his work. That was Jesus' food. And in John 17, 4, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. How did Jesus glorify God? He accomplished the work that God gave him to do. When he saves us, he saves us to good works, not because of our works, but to work. And sometime before John recorded this vision he saw in Revelation of Jesus, he wrote a letter to the church where he entreated the church. He says, little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. Jesus cares about the works of his church. Don't think that works don't matter to God. We insist that we, we are saved by grace alone, by, through faith alone, and, and no kind of good works. They add to the merit of Christ's work for us, but they do matter as a testimony to God. They do matter as a testimony to how he's changed our life, as a way to shine light in the darkness, as a way to glorify God in the world and draw people to Jesus. Our works demonstrate that he's changed us, that we're no longer enslaved to sin, but we're now set free to live for him. And so he sees these evidences of their new life in him as significant. He knows them and he commends them. He doesn't dismiss their work. He commends them for their increasing works. And, and there are many in the church here who are, are continuing to grow and have continued to grow in works of love, in faith, in service, in patient endurance. And as you have continued to grow in your works, Jesus commends you. And hear the works of the Lord commending the church. Jesus notices. They were strong in their love. They had not grown cold. But, but unlike the church in Ephesus where... The church in Ephesus was strong in doctrine, weak in love. This church was strong in love and weak in doctrine. And he tells them there are works, though, that he, will, he recognizes, but there's also works that, he, that will bring them to ruin. There's works that will bring them to ruin. And he's talking to his church here. He's saying there's works that will lead to ruin. And that's what he tells them in, in verses 20 to 23, these, these works that result in great tribulation. Look, look down your Bible, verse 20. He says, I, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. You know, that word tolerate is, is important. Today we hear a lot about the word tolerance, right? 
And there are some good things about tolerance. It is good, you know, in our, in our form of government, we tolerate people who disagree with us, that we tolerate those ideas and freedom of speech, and that's what we enjoy as Christians. We want to be tolerated by people who disagree with us. But there's a kind of tolerance that's a bad tolerance. There's a kind of tolerance when we tolerate ideas in our own midst and in our minds and in our hearts. We tolerate the sins of the world and idolatry. We tolerate sexual immorality. We tolerate going after false gods. And that's the kind of thing that Jesus says he won't tolerate. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, there was a specific woman in the church that he was addressing, but it's unlikely that her name was actually Jezebel. Just like when he addressed the church in the, in the passage we saw last week, he was addressing the teaching of Balaam. It wasn't that actually Balaam was teaching in the church. It was, that it was like the teaching of Balaam. There were those who were teaching those things. So there is a specific woman. She calls herself a prophetess. She claims to have this spiritual power, and yet it's just like the teaching of Jezebel, and that's how Jesus refers to this woman. He wants to bring attention to her, but doesn't actually name her personally yet. I think everybody in the church would have known who was being spoken about. And the name was likely symbolic because the name Jezebel was, was, was synonymous with wickedness in the Old Testament. And I can't imagine that any self-respecting Old Testament or self-respecting Jew would have, who knew their Old Testament would have named their child Jezebel. Just like I don't know any Judases today, right? I mean, even in unbelievers around... I don't know anybody who's named Judas because it's synonymous with betrayal. Jezebel was synonymous with wickedness. And so even though the name here is symbolic, it is a real person and real issues that are being addressed. And there is evidently a woman whose teaching was so wicked and misleading that Jesus refers to her as Jezebel. What kind of teaching is this? Well, think about who Jezebel was in the Old Testament. Jezebel, she was a Phoenician who had married the king of Israel in the northern kingdom. And she married him and she led him astray to worship after the Baals. And she convinced him to intermingle this idolatry along with the worship of God and and convinced Ahab and the whole nation that this was okay. And it led the nation into idolatry and that idolatry resulted in morality. Just like idolatry in our lives always results in some form of immorality. And from this position of influence, Jezebel led this northern kingdom into idolatry. And this false woman is in the same way teaching doctrine, is leading the church astray. It's just as dangerous as how Jezebel led the people of Israel astray. And Jesus is saying, I have this against you. You're tolerating that. You are erring on the side of thinking that it's loving to tolerate someone who's teaching false doctrine, that it's loving to be okay with somebody who is practicing immorality and they're in the church. Now, as a church, we want to welcome everyone from every background. We want to welcome people who have a sinful background, who are engaged in those things, to come to the church and receive the truth. But we're not going to say, hey, we're, going to com- we're not going to compromise on, on what the truth is. We want people to, to come and be set free. That means that we want to welcome people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of sinful backgrounds who might even currently be stuck in enslaved sin and say, hey, come to our church. We want you to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets you free from slavery. So now you can put those things behind you and not be enslaved to that any longer. But what the church had done here is they had confused welcoming sinners to come and receive grace with welcoming sinners into their midst and not challenging them, not bringing them to the truth. And so they were tolerating sexual immorality and idolatry in the church and this this false teaching. They let doctrinal error creep in and began to lead these people astray, just like bad doctrine always does. That's why Paul, when he was speaking to Timothy, And Timothy was establishing the church in that area. He was speaking to Timothy about how important it is to watch both your life and your doctrine. And so in 1 Timothy 4, 13, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Then he says, practice these things. Public reading of Scripture, exhortation, teaching. Practice doctrine. Devote yourself to them. Devote yourself to right doctrine based on on Scripture. He says, so that all might see your progress. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. 
Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's important that we we keep a close watch, not just on on how we live personally, but on the teaching that we adhere to and on the teaching that we communicate and on Scripture, and so that everybody might be devoted both to sound doctrine and living for Jesus. The church in Thyatira, they'd not done that. They'd not kept a close watch on the teaching, and it resulted in people being led astray and seduced by false teaching. Now, you might think, well, it's not very loving to tell people that they're sinning. Really? It's not loving to let people know that they're enslaved and that there's a way they can be set free. You see, the the people of Thyatira, they had love, they had faith, they had service, they were enduring. These were some some really great people in in one sense. They, They were loving people. You would have liked to be a part of their church because they would have accepted you. The problem is they would have also accepted Areas that needed to change in a, in a negative way. Now, I don't mean we don't extend grace. There are all of us, me, I think foremost in my mind, every Sunday I'm aware of my own sins, my own inadequacies, my own failings. So there, all of us here are flawed. All of us have issues, right? And anybody here who, who doesn't have an issue, you know, like let me know because I want to I learn from you. All of us here have issues, right? Can you, can you agree with that? Everybody have, anybody here have any, any sin issues you need to deal with? Any, any areas that need to be Tolerated in one sense, yeah? We, we all have our own junk, right? I'm not talking about areas where we want to grow, where we want to change, where we are seeking by God's grace, Lord, would you help me change this area and repenting? And you know, the Christian lifestyle is a, a constant lifestyle of repentance. We've already been forgiven. I don't mean that, that once and for all kind of salvation repentance, but this is a ongoing normative lifestyle of repentance. So all of us here need to give each other space and, and grace to grow. That's not what this passage is addressing. This passage is addressing people who are excusing their sins and claiming that they're okay and that God doesn't really care about how they live. That is a very common thought in the church today as well. If you look at most mainline denominations, they have allowed all manner of heresy to creep into the church because in the, in the banner of love and acceptance, they've, they've loved and accepted the things of the world as well. At that day in Thyatira, a lot of people would have been tempted because they were involved in this business of trade and if they wanted to do work, they had to be a member of a guild. The problem was those guilds looked to patron deities and they sacrificed to them when they had their guild meetings. They would get together in the guild meetings. They would sacrifice. They would have these big parties. There would be debauchery and all kinds of things that would happen. It's not unrelatable for those who are in business today. People who expected to entertain clients to attend company parties. There's immoral activity. Drunkenness go hand in hand with gathering and if you want to be accepted. It's easy to feel like you have to fit in with the ways of the world if you want to do business, if you want to be accepted, if you want to make money, you want to be successful. It's, it's tempting if you want to raise on, up in the ladder of this world's success story, then, then you're tempted to give in, you're tempted to compromise, you're tempted to go along and assimilate. And it's probable that whoever this false teacher was, she was encouraging Christians to go along and claiming that, that their Christian liberty allowed for those kinds of things and saying, no, that's okay. You can actually be a member of a guild where they sacrifice to idols and where they, they participate in these things and they have some debauchery. You can go along with those things as long as you don't believe those things because you know what? After all, God understands that the only way to make money is to be a part of these guilds and so that's Okay. People went along with it because it was convenient. They fooled themselves. They justified their participation with the world because of how it was necessary to make money. Dennis Johnson, he he says, materialism, no less than persecution, is a serpent's weapon of war against Christ's church. Materialism, no less than persecution, is the serpent's weapon of war against Christ's church. Where have we allowed false teaching to creep into our thoughts and our minds? Where have we allowed ourselves to assimilate, to accommodate the world in our midst, in our, in our thinking? In the church there, it was as if they were allowing the satanic beast into their, their own midst and ignoring 
that believers were being devoured by this false prophetess through this false teaching. Now, I don't know about you, but somebody came into my home, and I knew that they were going to teach something that was false. They were going to entice my children to sin. They were going to practice idolatry. They were going to lead my kids astray into sexual immorality. I would respond. I'm guessing you would too. I'm hoping you would. I'm hoping you would not tolerate that kind of influence on your children and on your family or those you care about. If you're a caring parent, you wouldn't allow somebody like that to come into your home. It wouldn't be loving to allow our spouse, our children, our relatives be seduced or enticed by false teaching. It's the same in the church. If you really love somebody in the church, if you really love each other, we're not going to tolerate those kinds of ideas and false teaching and allow them to creep in. The church that allowed this false doctrine to creep in and seduce and entice fellow members and now they were at the place where some members were actually engaging in this idolatry and, and most likely sexual immorality. It's not just a term for immorality in regards to loving Jesus with our hearts. It was immorality and loving Jesus with our bodies had been corrupted. Be like allowing your hand to do bad things and ignoring it. Be like allowing your eye to look at bad things and ignoring it. It'd be ridiculous. You'd be responsible for the members of your own body. To claim that, hey, it's okay, my hand's just doing these things over here and I don't really care about what it does. It doesn't make a difference. Same kind of claim that people in the church were ignoring. They were tolerating the behavior that they knew was going on. Now, it's not, this is not micromanaging people. It's not what Jesus is calling us to. He doesn't call us to micromanage each other. This is not setting up our standards as the standard. That's legalism. But what he's addressing here is license. He's addressing that, hey, the gospel of Jesus Christ has set you free to do good works for him. It has not set you free to live for yourself. And he's not encouraging legalism. He's, he's encouraging them to not ignore clear areas of sin. The church was tolerating this false teaching, yet there was grace remaining. He says, I gave her time to repent. I gave, I gave this Jezebel woman, her woman who claimed to be a prophet, claimed to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. I gave her time to repent. And so she refuses to repent. And her, her, her popularity, her influence had grown. False teaching like that continues in the church today as well, and it's nothing new. I just read a book, I read a story about a, a book that came out in the last few weeks about an author who she makes the argument that Christians need to abandon what the church has traditionally taught about sex and gender and to forge a new Christian sexual ethic. And I'm not going to list the author's name, but she's immensely popular. She's an ordained minister or pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church. She's planted a church, written books that are New York Times, best-selling lists, the Washington Post, which, by the way, if you're being commended by the Post and you're a Christian, I would watch out. She says to the woman, she's a tatted up, foul-mouthed champion to people sick of being belittled as not Christian enough for the right or too Jesus-y for the left. She's being lauded as being groundbreaking and effective. The Daily Beast, which is a, a newspaper apparently, <laughs> said of her, the amazing thing about this woman is that she manages to take her Christianity in corners of life where the church can be pretty uncomfortable going. She's likable. She's relatable. She's well-spoken. She's funny. She's a really good communicator. She's a charismatic personality. She has a frankness that people are drawn to because she's just real. She's authentic. And people are drawn to her teaching of heresy. And it's spreading. This is not something that was just relegated to church in Thyatira. This is something that we see all around us today. Now, let me be clear. It's not that women own the corner on the market of heresy, by the way, or false teaching. And I would say probably there's more men generally in history who have been false teachers, and examples of false doctrine, but Jesus is addressing a specific instance. He's not picking on women. It just happened there was a woman in the church who was very influential, leading others to sin. But like then, Jesus doesn't want the church to tolerate that kind of misleading teaching. Grace isn't a license to do whatever we want. It's freedom from being controlled by what we want so we can live holy lives that magnify the grace of Jesus. Don't confuse the patience of God with his permission. That's what he's telling the church there. He said, I gave her time to repent. She's not yet repented. But he still calls those who follow after her to repent. He says he's going he's to throw them on the sickbed. He's going to bring tribulation. He's going to throw them on the sickbed unless they repent of her works. So he's still extending grace for repentance. 
Alan Johnson said, the Lord is walking among his churches. He judges evil, but he also offers deliverance to those who've fallen. That's good news. It says, if they repent and stop doing Jezebel's deeds. Now listen, it's really enticing. It's enticing, and that kind of thinking has crept into the church today. It's crept into the church wherever people tolerate in their own lives. Hey, it's okay if I look at pornography. That's not going to corrupt me. I can still love Jesus and look at pornography. But that kind of thinking is not tolerated by Jesus. He says, no, that's, that's false teaching. It leads astray. It's, it's false teaching. It leads astray. It says, you know what? Um, I don't care about what Jesus says about marriage. Um, he's really more concerned with my happiness. And so I'm going to pursue that instead of obeying him and being faithful. It's when saying, no, Jesus doesn't really care about what I do with my body. It's okay. I can push the boundaries of how far I'm going to go with another person outside of marriage because, you know, as long as, as, long as we love each other, But Jesus says, repent. And there's a danger that he says. He says, those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. But there's also grace extended. He says, unless they repent. He's extending grace. And he says, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. That's, that's meant to call us up short and also to give us hope. He's the God of all grace, and he'll reward us as our works deserve. And, and here's the, really the good news for all of us who place our faith in Jesus. The works that he will reward us for is the works that he does in us, that we put our faith, our trust in his work. But he searches hearts and minds. He's the one with flaming eyes. His hot gaze is penetrating. It burns away any fogginess, any lack of clarity. It burns away excuses. It burns away through every falsehood, through every pretense, every cover-up. Nobody can hide their true motives from him. He says, I search the hearts and minds. It's actually literally the, the kidneys and heart. The heart was thought of as the place where the thoughts were and the kidneys were the, well, where the feelings were. But this is Jesus who searches where we truly feel and think. He knows our motives. And yet he calls the church to repent and he says, to the rest of you who are not holding to that teaching, but you're, you're aware of this, you're tolerating, you're not holding to the teaching, you've not followed after. You know, that applies for the majority of people here probably. They're not holding, we're not holding to those kinds of teaching, but there may be areas in our life where we're tolerating those things. He says, you've not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, don't, I don't lay on you any other burden, any other burden than what? Than the repenting of tolerating those things. And holding fast. There were some who probably said that in order to understand the grace of God, they probably had to understand that, that these deep things of Satan so that, you know, hey, the best way to combat sin and to understand the world is to participate in the things of the world. Yet Now, that's kind of a common thing today as well, right? People think, you know what, I, I want to engage in the things of the world because I want to learn what the world really believes. I want to learn what the world thinks. I want to learn what the world does. And so I'm just going to dabble a little bit in what the world does and how they think and what they do because then I know how to combat sin and I know how to relate to the world. And he says, don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. Those aren't the deep things. He calls them the deep things of Satan and that's a little sarcasm there. And so he says, stop, repent, stop tolerating false teaching and morality, hold fast to what you know. And then there's some great promises for all who do that. Jesus tells his church, there are works that are, that bring to ruin, but there's works that are rewarded. There's works that he recognizes, there's works that bring to ruin, and there are works that will be rewarded. Look down at verse 25, he says, only hold fast what you have until I come. And what's he talking about there? He's talking about both doctrine and works. He's talking about hold fast. Hold fast to what you have. Hold fast to the good news of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. Hold fast to the works that you're doing in response to the works that Jesus has done. Hold fast to those things. Holding fast to the good works of love and faith and servants and endurance is how they will conquer, how they will overcome is by not tolerating holding fast to what they've been taught. Don't let go of those good works. Don't let up. Keep at it so that your latter works continue to exceed your former works. As you grow in the grace of God, it's going to be evidenced in even more good works. Look in verse 26. He says, the one who conquers, 
and who does what? Who keeps my works until the end. To him I'll give authority over the nations. The one who conquers and keeps his works until the end is the one who have authority over the nations. That is really hard for me to understand. It's hard for me to relate to, but in some way, we actually will enter into ruling and reigning with Jesus. Jesus welcomes us in. He says, if you overcome by continuing to have faith in me and my finished work for you, and in response, you carry out the works that I've done in you, and you carry out those works in response, you've now demonstrated, you've shown that you're my disciples. And by the way, for all those who live that way, you can be sure that one day you will rule the nations. That's, that's pretty astounding. And it's not that we're worthy to rule the nations, right? None of us here are worthy to rule any nation, much less the nations, all the nations of the world. And yet, that's what Jesus says. He says, to him I will give authority over the nations. And it says in, in verse 27, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. There's a glorious promise to all who remain in the faith. Jesus is going to give them authority over the nations. The nations might seem to have authority now. The guilds in Thyatira might seem to have authority in those people's lives. The, they might seem to have authority over all things, and yet Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to give you true authority. Don't worry about any authorities locally right now. Don't worry about them taking away your means for, li- for living. I, in the end, will rule all nations, and by the way, I'm going to reward you with ruling the nations. I can't even imagine that. He says, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That word for rod, by the way, is the same word that's used for a shepherd's staff or a king's scepter. And I think in this passage, Jesus uses that intentionally because it's both. He's both the king who rules with a scepter and he's also the shepherd who watches out over his flock with a staff. And that, that rod, that staff that it's talking about, they would typically... It would, it would be capped with iron on either end because he would use, the shepherd would use that staff to kill any animals and enemies of the flock. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. He is getting rid of the enemies of the flock. And he's saying, if you, if you endure, if you're faithful to the end, trusting in my work, and, and in response, work, one day you rule the nations. And, the, and he quotes Psalms 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is a, a Davidic promise. This is a promise that God's giving to, to David as the forerunner of the Messiah and who he's giving to the Messiah. And he says, ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And Jesus is not only saying, this is fulfilled in me, but for all who follow me, they will share my reign and my rule. He will give his authority and rule to all those who overcome in him. You might feel like the world is ruling and reigning today. You might feel like the world is overcoming. But Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome the world. And by the way, in me, you've overcome. We can be sure of a reigning and ruling with Christ just like we be sure he has authority from the Father. I like how Alan Johnson puts it. He says that the, re- the prospect of such a reversal of their present experience of op- oppression and persecution would be a constant encouragement for suffering Christians. And then look at the last promise he gives in, in verse 28. Look in verse 28. He says, and I will give him the morning star. What, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to have a star? You know, I'll give him the morning star. What, is, what does that mean? Well, in, in those times, Venus was referred to as the morning star, and the Romans thought that their power was delegated to them by Venus, the goddess, who was a symbol of sovereignty and rule. And so, part of what he's saying here, most likely, is that he's going to give the person who overcomes this ruling authority, the sovereignty with him. But I think really what it means is even more precious than that. If you look in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. In Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16, he repeats this message to the church and he explains what the morning star is. And he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. What does that mean when Jesus says, and I'll give him the morning star? 
or him and her, the morning star. If you're, if you're placing your faith in Jesus and his finished work, and in response, you're loving Jesus with your works and saying, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch my life in Dr. closely, not because that's how I earned favor, but because Jesus has earned favor before God for me. So now I want to live in response. Then he says, Jesus gives you the morning star. He'll give you the morning star. What's he saying? He says, I'll give you myself. He promises to make himself known to them. I, I like how Peter spoke of it in 2 Peter 1. He says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Until Jesus reigns supreme in your hearts, until Jesus brings his presence near to you in a way that's indescribable. When he becomes your ultimate treasure, your ultimate reward. He's the better treasure. He's the great reward. There's, there's nothing less than the creator of all giving himself, the giver of all light, giving himself to his people. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We're not a slave to works either. You see, Jesus has set us free from being enslaved to have to work to earn his favor. And so now that we have his favor, we say, Jesus, I... We've received the favor of God completely. So now we can engage in working for him, trusting in him, having faith in him and his work in us and trusting in his reward. And, and he gives amazing promises. There's no greater promise than to have Jesus, the creator of all, give himself to you. And that's what he promises to all who remain faithful in this way. Well, we're going to ask the band to come forward. And as they're coming forward, we'll pray and ask God to help us apply. Father, thank you that you love us. Jesus, thank you that you love us enough to bring hard words to us. Jesus, you love us and you care about us. And so, Lord, you bring commendation, you bring recognition, you bring correction where needed. Lord, lay bare the thoughts of our mind and our hearts, Lord, where we have accommodated the thinking of the world in our own lives, where we've accommodated the thinking of the world in our midst. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would give us your grace, that we would see clearly, that we would lay aside any excuses. Lord, we would, we would not make excuses for where we have followed after our own worldly desires, where we've engaged in the things of the world. Lord, I pray we would set those things aside. We'd repent, we'd turn back to you. And Jesus, I pray that we would long for and look for your reward, confident that you will reward in ways that are indescribable for us to imagine. Would you increase our faith? Would you increase our love? Would you increase our service to you? Would you give us patient endurance in you? Because you have endured faithful to the end on our behalf. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.